Good morning, Don. Good morning, Bob. This is Don down in Nevada. Yes, sir. How are you today? Oh, another day. So how did your birthday go? <laughs> it went very well, I'm glad to say. I had a bad 24-hour bug on Friday, but uh, I was about 80% yesterday, back to 100% today. So overall, it was a very pleasant day. Thank you. Yeah, minus today. I, I oh, well, happy I, birthday. I don't like birthdays anymore <laughs> after 25 insert drops. Yeah, uh, well, I... I don't know about interest after, <laughs> we better not go down that road. But uh, anyway, it's just um, the, the thing that I think is funny that certainly doesn't, hopefully doesn't apply to me, I'm sure it doesn't apply to you, is uh, I saw a funny sign recently. It said, they, they say with age comes wisdom. Don't believe it. Sometimes age comes alone. <laughs> that's so that's what we're trying to avoid. How can I help you today? Okay, subject on the grass. My grass is dead now. We got two and a quarter inches of rain sometime last week. I don't even remember no more. But when is the best time to fertilize? Is it better to wait until, like, December to fertilize? So When when was the last time you fertilized? I don't know, a couple of years ago. <laughs> Do it today. Don't put it off. There's There's never a bad day of the year to put out organic fertilizers because they don't burn. They don't have to be watered in. They are giving us a fair chance of rain. They started out saying tonight. Now they're staying early tomorrow morning, like 3 a.m., 4 a.m., probably be a little later when it gets down to Divine. But, man, if you can get that fertilizer on this afternoon, it would be great. You don't have to water it in, but, of course, it doesn't really go to work until it gets watered in. So uh, I can't think of a better day to put fertilizer out if you haven't done so in the past 90 days, let alone the past 700 days. Okay, if I... If I uh, well, my fruit trees are in my yard. Is it going to be better for me to go ahead and feed them? Because absolutely, well, I'm a, it, use the Medina or the like. Fred is selling the Vitamix now. Whatever is more convenient for you. Medina has more micronutrients in it. Uh, uh, the Viatrac is a a very cost effective fertilizer where you're doing big areas. But uh, they don't add all the different things. I mean, I can legally tell you that Medina adds humates. They add molasses. They add uh, uh, quite a few uh, green sand, quite a few other things, and some of which I'm not really supposed to talk about since they're not on the bag. But Medina is a much fortified product when you compare it to the Viatrac. Now, if you're doing it on acreage, um, and cost is, of course, an, always an issue unless you've recently won the <laughs> won the lottery, in which case you're probably not quite as interested in agriculture. But uh, my choice would be Medina, but Viatrac is also a very good fertilizer. Okay, how often would I apply liquid molasses onto it? And if you're talking about, you know, a coastal field or something like that, I would do it every time you cut it. If you're talking about your yard and just uh, general garden, I don't know, two, three times a year. Will it soften the rocks? <laughs> you don't have rocks in Divine, at least not like we do in the hill country. It'll sure soften the soil around the rocks, I'll put it that way. Well, my yard, half of it's soil and the other half is flint rocks. My house does not level correctly all the time. Okay, well... I'm uh, afraid it won't do much about that, but it'll make that ground so full of organic material, everything around it's going to uh, absorb moisture and hold nutrients better. 
Yeah, that's what I was thinking because I got a lot of molasses stored away already. Excellent. What I used to use in the garden, now I don't go in the garden because I got beehives back there. <laughs> that shouldn't keep you out of the garden. Those bees are pretty friendly as long as you don't get too close to the hives. Oh, yeah. Knowing my luck, last time I got around bees, they got in the cab of a dozer with me. And mm. by the time I got out, I had 18 stings in the face. And I was off for a week. I, so I, I can imagine you have a little uh, uh, a little more caution and respect in there. But, uh, um, yeah, no, I your molasses would be great. All righty. You have a great day, and you don't work too hard. Uh, it's not gonna. It's gonna be one of those days when I don't have much choice, but that's a good thing. I'll talk All to you right. soon, Don. Thank you, sir. And next up is Jeannie. Good morning, Jeannie. Good morning. Good morning. Question about Nelson ryegrass. What's your opinion? Of what kind of uh, ryegrass? Nelson. It's something new that developed about ten years ago. Is it an annual rye or perennial rye? Annual, I believe. Okay. You know, it's not one that I am familiar with. There have gotten to be so many different ryegrasses out there. If it is one of the compact or intermediate ryegrasses, uh, it is one that I would think very highly of. The one that I really don't care for is pasture grass. It's okay, but as a lawn grass, I would never plant the so-called Oregon rye because it's one of the taller-growing ryes. It is so full of moisture that it is very hard to mow. It literally bogs down your mower, doesn't cut crisply or evenly. My favorite ryegrasses, just to tell you the truth, are the blends. Uh, we're looking at a new, in fact, we're using a new annual ryegrass blend this year called Pantera, P-A-N-T-E-R-A, that uh, I think has very good potential. I would just do a little research on uh, this new variety that you're finding, and if it is either a dwarf or a compact, uh, as an overseeding grass, I would recommend it very highly. If you're planting it for forage, for goat, sheep, cattle, anything else, go ahead and plant the old Oregon ryegrass. It's cheap, it gets big, provides a lot of bulk, and uh, nothing wrong with it in the pasture, but I would not choose Oregon ryegrass for the yard, but any of the dwarf or intermediate kinds I think would be fine. One word of warning there, though, if you're overseeding an existing lawn, don't put it on too heavily because if you get it too heavy on there, it can actually impact the ability of your permanent grass to come back in the spring. So we recommend seeding it at about half the rate that uh, you would if you were covering bare ground. So where you're overseeding, use it a little bit more sparingly. But if you want a green yard in the winter, go for it. I think it's a great plan. Well, actually, I should have told you this is where pasture I would just, uh, yeah, I would, I would do just a little more research on it. If it's, uh, in that case, an intermediate to tall grass, and as long as it is frost tolerant, most dry grasses are frost tolerant. But uh, where you're going to be using it for forage, yeah, I'd, I'd go with one of the taller growing varieties, and. Um, uh, you know, just the one thing I'll tell you about ryegrass. What what are you grazing? Cattle. Cattle. Okay, if you're grazing cattle, I would sure do my best to rotate them around on it because cattle can eat ryegrass down to the point that they destroy it. 
if you can divide the grazing area into, if they were bigger, we'd call them pastures. If they're smaller, we'd call them paddocks. But if you can, uh, if you can rotate your cattle around uh, between, say, three or four places and move them each time that grass gets eaten down to about half of its original height, it will keep regrowing, and you can probably graze it all the way up, uh, all the way up till hot weather next spring. Uh, old friend a uh, little bit east of here uh he actually has his place divided into one and a half acre paddocks he runs over a hundred cattle on that operation but he's got like 90 different little paddocks that he you know rotates them through every few days that's not possible for most of us that uh um you know <laughs> <laughs> Who has the time to do that? He says he doesn't have to do anything. He just opens the gate, and the cattle automatically go from one to the next. But with ryegrass, I think it's especially important if you can set up a rotational grazing system. And doesn't mean you have to build fences. Uh, today's electric fencing is so inexpensive, so affordable, and so easy to use. You don't even have to use wire. They have a bra- braided poly ethylene cord or polypropylene cord i'm not sure which it is it actually has the little wires embedded in it that is super flexible super easy to put on an insulated stake and uh that's that's the easy way to divide your pastures down where the cows are not eating whatever your forage grass is all the way to the ground because rye grass like oats or anything else if they eat it all the way to the ground they can certainly kill it if you can rotate them around a bit you can keep them grazing on it all winter one more quick question, Bob. I need to repot my orchid. He's growing roots out of the bottom of the pot. What's a good orchid mix? And what kind of orchid is this? That's Phalaenopsis. Okay, orchid. yeah, Phalaenopsis or a moth orchid. Um, here's one thing that's important about that, Jeannie, is the sign of roots coming out the bottom of the pot is not necessarily a sign that it needs to be repotted because realize that in nature, down in the Philippines or Borneo or wherever that particular type of phalaenopsis originated they grow mainly on trees and they're going to put those roots out as far as they can in every direction possible so the time we repot orchids is when the medium that they are in begins to break down and it is perfectly normal i'll tell you a story in just a second about roots just going everywhere and uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it needs to be repotted. If it does need to be repotted, I like a mixture of fir bark. Uh, there are a couple of different mixes sold. My favorite is a mixture of bark and charcoal. Sometimes they add a little bit of perlite to that. Sometimes they may add a little bit of lava rock to that. But a me, uh, mix that is based on bark rather than being based on the sphagnum moss. Most of these orchids come to us, uh, the phalaenopsis you get these days, most of them come out of uh, China. And they're growing in sphagnum moss. If yours is in sphagnum moss, I would repot it directly into the fir bark. In fact, I do it as soon as I get it. But if yours is already in a bark type mix, don't repot it until you know that bark that it's in is starting to break down because it's perfectly normal for the roots to grow everywhere. I gave a phalaenopsis many years ago to an aunt who put it in her kitchen window, and that plant bloomed almost constantly for three years. Um, she had uh, one day a week domestic help, and the lady who came in thought she was going to do her favor, and as she put it, trim all those ugly roots off, 
and the plant didn't bloom again for two years. So it wants to have those roots spreading out everywhere. So if you're if the medium that yours is in now, or if it's in uh, that that fibered sphagnum moss, go ahead and get it out and put it in the bark mix. Otherwise, don't be in any rush to do it. What kind of bark did you say it was? Fir. F-I-R. It's actually Douglas fir bark. Yeah, pine bark has too much pitch in it, too much sap in it. But the uh, the Douglas fir bark, and you know, you can buy it. Um, gosh, you're over toward Victoria. I would imagine that Earthworks carries it. If not, they can get you a bag of fir bark, and um, uh, that's that's what I grow you know, several hundred orchids in. All right, thank you. You're certainly welcome. You have a wonderful Sunday, Jeannie. Appreciate the call. Thank you. Right, bye-bye. Bye. All right, it's Linda and AJ and Terry, and Linda's up first. Good morning, Linda. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I just had a couple of questions about my desert rose. Okay. I moved. I have three. I moved them in a couple of weeks ago. Good for I you. Remembered that you said below 65. <laughs> they don't like it. You have a good memory, and your plants appreciate it. Uh, no, they don't. They're dropping all of their leaves. Keep them in the sunniest window you can. It's actually normal for them to drop a bunch of leaves in the winter. Uh, they're an African plant that comes from an area where they do get uh, a dormant period, so to speak, a drying period. Uh, unlike amaryllis and some of the things we were talking about in the bulb seminary yesterday, they don't require that drying out in order to bloom, but it is perfectly normal when you bloom. bring them in. Any change in light, any change in conditions, they're going to drop a bunch of leaves. It does not mean they're unhappy. It just means they think they're back home and they're supposed to go through a little dormant phase. They may lose every leaf on the plant, but they will come back out pretty quickly, and it will not influence the blooming. The other question I had was about the the older one, because it's probably, I guess I've had it 15 years, mm-hmm. so it's three feet tall, <laughs> but it looks like an octopus on its back with all of the tendrils growing up, because the leaves only come out in about the top eight inches. Okay. Uh, Can you cut those back? You can, not at this time of year. You always want to cut something back when it's going into its period of most active growth and when it's going to be able to absorb the most energy. Of course, energy is sunlight and is obvious to everyone. Uh, The days get much shorter in the winter, and the light gets much less intense in the winter. So this is not time to cut anything back unless you just can't get it through the door without doing that. Oh, no. I've I've already gotten them through the door. They're in the south-facing window, but I also got my trees thinned out. And as an aside, I did try Tree Wise Men Uh and was very pleased. I'm glad to hear it. Jordy and his crew do a good job 99% of the time. I caught them one time... uh, pruning without painting and they got a little lecture from me but i think they they're among the best in the business so i'm glad he did a good job for you uh but back to your desert rose the more light they get the more they will fill in down at the base just naturally uh they can branch naturally but uh, uh, any plant is only going to put on as many leaves as uh you know, as it has light to support. The purpose of the leaf is to absorb the sun's energy, and that plant has a chemical way of sensing, hey, there's not enough light down here, so I'm not going to bother to make any leaves. So if there is any way, or actually, you know, the real people that get a little carried away with this 
will set a plant like that on top of a bed of white rock or something like that to get reflected light back up and get more light into the base of the plant. Somebody that's really intent on getting the, you know, the absolute maximum number of leaves on the plant. In your case, pretty big plant. If you want to trim the tentacles on that octopus, yeah, you can do it, but let's don't do it till March or so. Otherwise, just put it in the brightest light possible. Certainly not going to affect the blooming, not having leaves all the way to the base. It's just kind of, if you think it looks better with lower foliage, doesn't hurt to cut them back, and you can certainly propagate those tops you take off at that time of the year. Come to my seminar next Saturday, and I'll teach you exactly how to do that. Okay. Or call me in March, uh, and I'll tell you. about it uh, was, let's see, my, now my mind's going to go blank, is, um, oh, well, I'll, I'll ask you at a later time. I'm not going to worry about <laughs> it. Write them down. I tell you, we get to the I point that. I've got a little uh, tablet here where I'm writing them down, but. Uh, I'll be here yeah. for you when you need me, Linda. Okay. Thank you so much. You're sure welcome. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. All right. Back over Victoria Way. It's AJ's turn. Good morning, AJ. Good morning, Bobby. How are you progressing this morning? Well, I have not had a single situation arise yet today, so the day is off to a very good start. How about your world? Well, I'm calling. I've developed one, uh, and I I need some assistance. (laughs) Verbal assistance I can provide, but you're too far away for anything else, so what can I help you with? All All right. I've taken some uh, plants from the soil of the Pride of Barbados and put them in little pots. How big were the plants that you... How big plants did you dig up? How big are the plants that you dug up? They were probably about three to four inches tall. Okay, good. That's a good size to transplant them. (laughs) But they were uh, very slow-growing compared to some other plants that I've taken out of the ground, and that's what I was calling about. Are they naturally slow, or is that their, what they do? They are a super bright light plant, and they are a super hot weather plant. They basically just look like crud for the first year, especially the first winter, because I know a lot of growers that start their seed this time of year, and they are the spindliest, sickliest little plants in the world through the season through the cold season unless you have a really hot greenhouse and really bright light most folks just are happy to keep them alive through the winter months and then when it starts getting hot not warm but when it starts getting hot in the spring they just explode into growth so if you have a propagating mat keep them on that as long as you can put them in the brightest part of your area that you hold them through the winter and keep them as warm as you possibly can, but you are just looking at what Pride of Barbados does uh, in the winter months in our part of the world. Okay. No, these have been in pots for about 90 days, and I went ahead and set about five or six of them out in the ground Mm -hmm. this past week and lowered them in the soil where I could cover them uh, when it, if it got cold. So, yeah. okay, that you're in, you've told me, told me what I need to know. Well, how? So, tell me this, A.J., how big of pots are they in now, and how much have they grown? They are in, in a very small pot. They're probably a, a two-cup pot. Okay. But the roots have not, are just now coming through the soil. I've, I've pulled a couple of plugs out, and the roots are first coming out into the soil, okay. I mean, to the edge. 
Okay. And so uh, they're not that big. Okay, well, keep an eye on it because once those roots really start getting to the edge of the pots, they would love to go up into gallon containers if they're in, you know, say, four-inch pots now. They will right. they will grow more quickly as it warms up in a little bit larger container. And I know that you are like I am. When, when March gets here, I've got a lot more things on my list to do than I have time to do them. So sometime over the winter months, if those roots have made a good, good progress toward getting to the edge of those pots long before we would consider them root-bound, and if you have the room to do it, go ahead and bump them up into gallon containers, and uh, they'll take off a lot better for you in the spring. All right. Okay. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll do as I'm told. <laughs> and you have a great Sunday, A.J. It's always good to hear from you. You too, Bob, and thank, thank you. you. Yes, Bye. sir, thank you. Good morning, Terry. Hi, Bob. Good morning. I succumb to the beauty of annuals blooming all over Kingdom Come and bought several. <laughs> and I have the worst green thumb in the world. I can do plants and shrubs, but flowers and I... Anyway, how long can I expect them to bloom? I know they're annuals, um, but, you know, they look gorgeous sitting there on the ground, and I bring them home, and, um, you know, two days later they look so ragged. So What, what am I doing wrong? What, what, what have you purchased? Oh, little miniature ones from church. Uh, you know, don't know what they are, but little tiny miniature mums from church festivals and things. They had those beautiful ones at HEB, you know, from mm-hmm. 680, a plant. They were like spider-looking kind of mums. With, or, well, they were variegated. But anyway, um, you know, what kind of, how frequently do you water them? And when they're in those lightweight things, should they be transplanted immediately into something more stable in the, in the, with the um, soil well, they come in? Well, we've, we've got a lot to talk about here, Terry. And the first thing is you're making bad choices on the plants as far as things that bloom a long time. Mums bloom for a short period of time. Mums can be perennial. And in a cooler climate, they can give you color over a long period of time. But first of all, on mums, I would classify them at early, mid-season, and late. And mums do not hold up in the heat. Sometimes these things planted in the ground, they're gone in three or four days. So if you're going to buy mums, uh, first of all, I'd probably deal with the nurseryman who knows what they're doing, although that's Mm -hmm. not always the case either. But always buy mid-season or late-season mums that don't start blooming too early. When we talk about annuals for color, I like to think about things for the cool weather. I like to think about things like pansies and Johnny Jump Ups, which will bloom every day of the fall, winter, and well into the spring, so long as they get bright light. If you have a shaded area, I like to think about things like cyclamen, like ornamental kale, ornamental cabbage. These things are going to be beautiful every day of the winter, unless we get just a bitterly cold period, in which case you may have to cover a bit. Uh, We can talk about petunias and dianthus and snapdragons, which bloom all fall, grow through the coldest part of the winter, and then start blooming again in the spring and bloom all the way up till hot weather. So, I'm not, I don't think it's the case that Terry has a black thumb. I think that you're just not making the best choices you could for plant material because, you know, mums are beautiful for a very short period of time. The plants would be happier if you put them in the ground immediately when you get them. But my advice on mums for the most part is enjoy them as potted plants for as long as the blooms are pretty and then cut the old flowers off and plant them into the ground 
Um, they're probably not going to do any more this fall. If we have a mild winter, they'll bloom again in the spring and again the following fall. If we have a cold winter, they're going to freeze down and come back out next year and give you the same brief period of flowers next fall. I, I just don't plant mums unless there is something special or sentimental to you about mums or unless that's just a time of year that you want to see a lot of yellow and orange in the landscape. So, um, and if, uh, you know, uh, if you happen to ever be by Shades of Green, we've got a couple of free handouts we can give you that will give you a very long list of annuals that you can plant in the cool weather as well as annuals you can plant in the hot weather. Main factor is the amount, proper amount of light. Beyond that, just a little fertilizer, water regularly whenever that soil's dry, about half an inch deep. And that doesn't mean every day or every other day because with changes in temperature, changes in wind, changes in shade or sun, um, it may be one week you may water five times during the week. The next week you may water only once or twice. So we can't just do it by the calendar. It's a simple matter of using the best moisture meter in the world, which is your index finger. And when that soils dry about a knuckle deep or so, then it's time to water them thoroughly again. Right, that is my measurement. Okay. Well, thank you because I thought I didn't realize there are perennial mums, so I will be over there to your shop and check. Well, out. most mums are perennial, but all mums are beautiful for a very short period of time. If you're looking for, I think the showiest fall perennial, even though it doesn't bloom for a real long period, that thing we call the Texas aster, improperly called aster forcarta by some people, but it's a little lavender one with a yellow center. Those yep, things, to it. me, are much more spectacular than mums are, and they are very dependable as far as coming back year after year after year. But no perennial is going to have the all-season potential uh, that our true cool-weather annuals do. And if you, want, if you want flowers out there every day of the winter and you have a good sunny spot, choose good pansies or good Johnny Jump Ups, which are like miniature pansies, and... There must be, golly, there must be a hundred varieties out there nowadays, wide range of colors. Some of them are solid colors. Some of them have beautiful faces to them. But uh, if you want color, <laughs> you make the right choices. And I can pretty much guarantee you, you'll turn into a, you know, a plant champion instead of a plant killer. Thank you so much. You have a great day. <laughs> you Bye-bye. do the same, Terry. Thank you. All right, let's head over Shiner Way. Good morning, Kay. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Um. I have a pot, probably around five gallons, that has wild purslane growing in it mm-hmm. that I use in my smoothies. That's the best thing and you can do with that thing. It doesn't bloom worth a darn, but it it no, is very good for you. No, but um, I saw a program on Central Texas Gardener out of Austin that mm-hmm. said that the wild purslane is the most nutritious plant growing in your garden. So uh, yeah, I don't know if I'd I agree with that, but it's certainly a very good plant. <laughs> <laughs> I use it once in a while because it just comes up. You know, yeah, I don't, absolutely. I don't but anyway, it has fire ants in the pot and also mounted up around the bottom. Mm-hmm. And I've sprinkled the diatomaceous earth on them, but really to no avail. And I have some mound drench, but I'm wondering if I put mound drench on them, will I still be able to use the wild purslane in my smoothies? Uh, Check and see what the active ingredient is. If it's lavender oil or rosemary oil, absolutely. Um, Well, regardless of what it is, uh, it it certainly will not affect your ability. All the things in Mound Drench are strictly 
um, we might call them cutaneous killers. They are not systemic. They are not absorbed into the plants. I'm more concerned about your harming your purslane, and if the active ingredient is orange oil in there, you better really dilute it down because it can burn plants pretty easily. The newer one that Nature's Creation makes is not as bad, but in a pot, I would use it at about half the recommended strength, and it will still be pretty effective. The ants, it doesn't kill. It will very definitely run off, plus it smells good. It says the active ingredient is rosemary oil, the inert ingredients, wintergreen oil, mineral oil, USP, lecithin, and water. All those things are... They could be considered nutritious in some ways. There's nothing in there that's going to bother you in any way. Um, It may change the flavor very slightly, but I suspect Uh, you're flavoring. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say I suspect you're flavoring your smoothies with some other things. So um, the uh, yeah, I would uh, I would dilute it down a little bit beyond what they suggest, and just be sure you really thoroughly drench it. And uh, you should get rid of the ants uh, just almost instantly. The, the fire ants, the problem with them is that they kind of waterproof the mound as they work. And uh, it's sometimes hard to really soak the pot thoroughly. But uh, the product you have sounds like the Nature's Creation product. And uh, they put a wetting agent in there. That's one of those last ingredients in there, less than I think. And uh, it's, it's really very, very effective uh, in killing them. Okay. Seems like most of them are mounded up around the bottom outside anyway. Well, and I'll tell you what, if, sure you pick, inside too. if you pick a warm day to do it, those are the hardest working damn little ants you've ever seen. They take all of the developing eggs and larvae and they bring them up as close to the surface as they can to warm them up on a warm day. So if you go out and, you know, do it either early morning or late evening when it starts to cool down. They've carried all those little developing ants back down into the mound. If you do it in the hot part of the day, you will see as you wash the surface away, pouring the drench over there, you'll see hundreds if not thousands of eggs and larvae developing. And I hate to say it, but it just does my old black heart. I've been stung by so many fire ants in my life that I... I love to see them uh, meet their demise, shall we say. Now, out of the pasture, I leave them alone because they control ticks, and I'm happy about that. But in that pot, if you, you can do it any time, but if you do it in the middle of the day, you will kill the largest number of ants most quickly, and you'll wipe out the next generation. Thank you. I'll do it. <laughs> you go for it. And uh, in this case, it's a, it's a genocide that we will highly approve of. All right. Thanks for the information. Always a pleasure, Keith. Thank you. Goodbye. Stephen's up first. Good morning, Stephen. Morning, Bob. Morning. I've got a question about persimmon trees that I planted back over tax-free weekend this year. Okay, Asian persimmons? The big, yes. big fruit of persimmons? Correct. Yes, sir. Okay. And wanted to see what I need to do to take care of them well, because they haven't looked like they've taken off. One of them did get some new growth, so that uh-huh. was promising for me, but otherwise they just... You know, in, in my opinion, without having planted any before, look a little bit sad sometimes. Well, the first thing you need to do is develop a lot of patience. Those trees are super long live. They'll outlive peaches and plums, you know, by about a four to one ratio. But 
like most long-lived fruit trees, they are slower growing, so don't be too impatient with them. Uh, do be sure the root flare is exposed if you want to get the fastest growth possible. This time of year, feed them with a good slow-release organic fertilizer, Maestro Grow, Medina, Nature's Creation, whichever you know is convenient for you. During the growing season, hit them about every two weeks with a good liquid fertilizer like Has to Grow or one of the good Fox Farm products or one of the good Espoma products. But uh, they will respond to good organic fertilization. They will respond to deep watering whenever that soil is dry about an inch deep. But never will they take off and grow as fast as a peach or a plum will. But like I say, they'll be they'll be slower to produce, but they'll still be producing when your grandkids are ready to enjoy them. Where peaches or plums, you know, 8 to 12 years, pretty much maximum life. Persimmons could go 60 or 80. Okay, and so should I not have a big mulch mound around them? Oh, no, mulching is great. No mulch around the trunk. You need to have that root flare exposed, but out over the surface of the soil... Uh, two, three inches deep, mulching is one of the best things you can do. And when you fertilize, you can just put it right on top of the mulch. Obviously, with the liquid, it goes right through. But even the granular fertilizers uh, will make their way down toward the soil, and the microbes will start digesting them. Okay, perfect. And and I'm just moving to the area, so where's the best place to look for those organic fertilizers? Uh, just about any nursery will have them. Medina is a very good brand. Nature's Creation is a very good brand. Maestro Grow is a very good brand. Um, Spoma is another very good brand. Uh, Fox Farms makes some good ones. And the thing about organics is even though the numbers on the bag are lower, your plants get like 100% of the nutrients, whether they get maybe 10% of the synthetic chemicals. So don't even look at the numbers on the bag. But Medina, Maestro, Nature's Creation, Espoma, those are all great brands to look for. All right, perfect. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Stephen. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, and by the way, we do have free seminars and things like that. We'll help you with your organic education anytime you like. Uh, Susan's next. Good morning, Susan. Good morning. How are you today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Good. Antique roses. Uh-huh. I have um, two that I bought at the Antique Emporium probably okay. 12 years ago. And they're starting to uh, get really woody, even though they, I trim them back on Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. And the environment that they're in, I think, is not conducive, because I have rocks and that sort of thing. It shouldn't bother them too much, as long as you well, have some soil. they just seem to be failing, and I, I do the rose glow and everything. So I'm thinking about getting some uh, more of Mr. Lincoln and Belinda Stream and putting them in a different part of my garden. But I didn't know whether how far the roots spread out, whether I can put them in my raised bed. Oh, put them anywhere you like. Uh, You grow them in pots, for that matter, if it's a big enough pot. Most important thing is that they have good sunlight. And where possible, I know Belinda's Dream, you will find it on its own roots. Mr. Lincoln, you may have to look around. But uh, if you buy a grafted rose, you know, it's kind of like, you know, bypass surgery, things like that. They don't last forever. And a grafted rose grafted on a rootstock has a limited life, probably 10 or 12 years, whereas a plant on it. Yeah, and I'm right at that. Jan, the the one thing about about your roses from the Antique Rose Emporium, everything they grow is on their own roots. So 
I don't know that I'd be ripping out those old plants. I probably would give them a fairly brutal pruning back. And uh, then I'd follow that up with probably double the amount of rose glow. And if you want the best results, I love taking rose glow or the one that the same company makes for us we call uh, Color Essentials. I like mixing it half and half like just getting a little bit more nitrogen to the plants. And we mix it 50-50 with something like Medina's Growing Green or Nature's Creations Premium Lawn Food. And I think that 50-50 mix, especially in poor soils, gives you even better growth. So I'd, I'd sure give that a try on your ones that seem to be kind of fading because they should sure last more than 10 or 12 years. But on the case of grafted roses... You're just kind of limiting yourself there because grafted roses never last a really, really long time. And I love Mr. Lincoln. It's one of the prettiest red roses ever developed. But I would either be looking for someone who has propagated that from cuttings or find somebody that has a Mr. Lincoln rose and propagate your own from cuttings because the own root roses are just so much more durable than the grafted roses. If you are forced to choose a grafted rose, that's also an important consideration because Mr. Lincoln can be grafted onto four or five different rootstocks, most of which do not really do well in our alkaline soil here. So if you do buy a grafted Mr. Lincoln, get it from uh, or get it from a company that sells roses. I think Weeks Roses, W-E-E-K-S, Weeks Roses has a very good rootstock that will do well here and uh a couple of the other California growers, Jackson Perkins, for the most part, uses a rootstock that'll do well here. But no matter how tempting they look, do not buy Tyler roses. Do not buy roses from Lindale or Tyler or any place like that because they graft on a rootstock which is uh, for sandy, acidic soils. And those roses, regardless of what the prominent name on them is, they perform poorly in our soils because they're just not on the right rootstock for us. That's sort of Roses 101. Does that give you some help? Okay, Bob, I think uh, the the previous caller was the one that you were talking to. I'm Jan, and I wasn't calling about Roses. Oh, well, I'm okay. okay. I What did I do here? I hit the wrong button, I guess. So, well, anyway, I, if that was... Uh, Caroline, I was paying too much attention to my log and not enough to that. We'll get to her in just a second. Let me go ahead and get your question, first of all, Jen. Okay. Well, I think that'll be a quick question. Okay. Uh, I bought I bought some green sand, uh, Nature's Creation, and I want to know, I was reading the directions on there, and it has several different options about spreading it. Should I just, can I just spread it on top of, well, I want it for my flower bed. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because I think that at one time they were prepared pretty well for planting, but the soil seems to be very compacted now. And so I was thinking maybe the green sand would help. But I want to know, do I have to work it into the soil or can I just spread it on top? Well, the good news is that you can just spread it on top. The bad okay. news is it's not going to do a lot to soften your soil because green sand is uh, is great for plants that need uh, a little bit uh, additional iron, additional zinc, additional micronutrients, and it is a very, very good product for that purpose. But for soil softening, you're going to do a lot better with molasses. You're going to do a lot better with uh, perhaps lava sand. 
there are other things that will do a better job softening than the green sand. But this green sand is normally a fairly fine uh, sand, and the very best green sand, which is what Medina adds to their fertilizer and things, is called micronized, which means it's ground down to a dust-like consistency because when we're looking at micronutrients, we're, surface area is the whole secret to it. The more surface area we have, the faster it goes to work. So um, I think green sand is an absolutely great product, but it's not necessarily what I would choose for softening the soil. Dry products that would help, like I say, would be molasses, and you can use that liquid or dry. Humates, either liquid or dry humates are going to work at softening. And, of course, compost, just straight old good manure compost is uh, one of the best things that you can use for, for softening soils. So um, those are all good options. Green sand's great stuff. Uh, it's just not for soils, soil softening. Okay. I guess I had green sand and lava sand mixed up. Right. Um, okay. Thank you. Um, do you have a good source for organic compost? I, I don't know. I want to get compost, but I want it to be organic, and I sure. don't know... Uh, you know, I, I don't know how to get that. Where are where are you located, Jan? Approximately. I, I am close to um, Rainbow Garden on Thousand Oaks. Okay, um, your closest source, if you want to go pick it up, is going to be Stone and Soil Depot out on Two Eighty One. Um, they they are New Earth dealers, and New Earth is producing the only certified organic compost that I know of. You can always call New Earth directly, but if you want to. If you want to pick it up, heading out 281 is going to be a little bit closer to the Stone and Soil Depot location out there. And, you know, most all of the manure-based composts that you get are organic. The uh, 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 New Earth is the biggest company around, and they have spent the money and gone through all the paperwork necessary to get their certified organic. What I really want you to stay away from are the biosolids compost. I just simply have a lot of questions about other things that winds up wind up in our waste stream. But if you want certified organic compost, the uh, manure compost from New Earth is going to be the best around. And um, uh, the folks at Stone and Soil Depot are going to be your nearest distributor of it. And they will certainly deliver to you. Okay, great. Oh, I would tell you one other thing. If you ever have reasons to get on 1604 and you're headed around towards SeaWorld over that way, uh, Stone and Soil Depot also owns the old uh, Fertile Garden Supply location, which is right there about three miles south of Bandera Road. There's just there's so much road construction over there, so much traffic. Um, I think time-wise should be better to head out 281 to their location out there. Okay. Okay, last question. Um, I have been blowing my loquat or kumquat leaves. I, I, it's a big tall tree, and I never know whether it's loquat or kumquat. <laughs> it was a big. If it's a big, tall, tall tree, it's a loquat. If it's a short tree with a delicious miniature citrus fruit, that's a kumquat. But your your taller one is definitely the loquat, also known as Chinese plum. Okay, that's what I've got then. I've been blowing my leaves back into my flower bed just mm-hmm. for mulch during the summer. But they don't look like that they would decompose very fast. So am I doing the right thing by just putting those loquat seeds back on the flower, or loquat leaves back on the flower bed? 
I, I think you're doing a very good thing because quite obviously the leaves are putting the same nutrients that it took for them to grow well back into the soil. My suggestion would be, if possible, run your mower over them one or two times to chop them down a little bit because uh, decomposition is a matter of surface area, and the more you chop those leaves up, the faster they're going to break down. I see. Okay. All right, Bob. Thank you very much, and you have a great day. You do the same. I appreciate it, Jan. And realizing now, yes, it was Susan that I was talking to, and I hope we got her questions answered because she she moved on to let Diane grab that phone line. It's going to be Carolyn and Bob and Diane are my next three callers, and Carolyn's next. Good morning. Good morning from Fort Worth. Again. Yes, ma'am. Yes, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna keep down to a few questions okay Uh, that uh guy that called about the persimmon tree that that reminded me that wasn't on my list but i'm calling it it's about five years old the first two years i got gorgeous persimmons it's a big beautiful tree Mm -hmm. and um and then it got then i then it that it bore for two years and then the third year it didn't and i noticed that it's on a slope and then the root flare got covered up yeah so then i uncover the root flare and the next year i got twig girdlers which destroyed the limbs right and then the next year which was last year i it was covered with little persimmons but i had so many white flies and um i sprayed for white flies but those little persimmons none of them made they just fell off well the tree it, looks gorgeous yeah i hope that this next spring will be better you know the things you've described the white fly the twig girdlers um and all are frequently what we see when that root flare gets covered up and i would have expected it to respond a little bit more quickly but as we were discussing persimmons are just slow my choice of products for fighting the white fly is this spinosad soap uh, and it now comes in a concentrate that you can mix in your own sprayer but if the weather cooperates, meaning we don't have a super early or super late hard freeze, um, you should get good production this coming year. Do you remember which variety of persimmon you planted? Yes, it's a fuyu. A fuyu. I believe that fuyu is one of the self-fertile ones. If you have room, I would plant a eureka or a hachia. Do oh, you, I pr- planted another fuyu that I got, and you know what they do at the nurseries? They strip them all the way up till it looks like it has a toupee uh, on the top. It's terrible. And I've got the, it is terrible, and it hasn't gotten any side branches since, but it's still sitting there. And I, I bought that as a second one. I just yep. didn't realize that it had to be a different one, but I did buy the, another fuyu, and it's been sitting there, and it hadn't done anything. It hadn't <laughs> gone downhill. It's Root flare is exposed. And, yeah. You know. Well, it, you've certainly uh, learned, as I was telling the previous caller, they are slow. But if you have a chance, uh, stick uh, Tamopan, Taninashi, uh, Hachia. Those are all, uh, Eureka, those are all going to be good companions to your food use, and you'll definitely increase production. Uh, some of them, and I'd have to get out my list to look and see which ones, some of them have the ability to produce 
fruit through what we call parthenocarpy, which means they can produce fruit without being pollinated, without being fertilized. And, of course, you wind up with fruit with very little or no seed in it. So sometimes it's fun to have more than one variety if you like persimmons as much as I do. I do, but I don't I don't have room for another one. So <laughs> the, the, the one that I have, the flu, you made plenty of persimmons the first two well, years. So it'll I get back to it. With that. Yeah, it'll get yeah, back so to it. I just need to know how to control the white flies because they're they're back again. They're on some of my, they got on a cucumber plant and everything. I, I don't know why they're coming. Everything is organic and sure. everything is watered with. Okay, the next question. The, let me tell you, the, the brand name on that is Natural Guard is the name you'll buy it under. It's actually one division. I organ- have it. I, okay. bought it. I bought it when I was uh, down in San Antonio area uh, about a month a month ago. So you have, have found it. the uh-huh. concentrate. That's a big improvement this year as we get it in the concentrate. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Okay, then I have a lime tree, um, a Mexican lime, and it's in, the, uh, in a large pot. And they're, they're, some of these limes, they're maturing now. They're turning kind of yellow, and that's when I like them, when they get kind of yellow. They're so juicy. Mm-hmm. And But they're, some of them are splitting, and I don't know why some of them are splitting. You At know. some point, um, they've gotten a little drier than they wanted to. Plus, with the heat this summer, that uh, rind on them, if we can call it that, the peel on them, so to speak, has gotten tougher it's partly from the heat. It's partly from drying a little more than they like. And then when they suddenly get a bunch of moisture, I know you've gotten a few good rains recently, the the uh, pulpy part inside simply absorbs so much water. It's like a snake or a lizard shedding their skin. It just can't stretch enough, and that's when it splits. When that happens, you need to go ahead and harvest them and either juice them immediately or stick them in the freezer and juice them at your leisure later but well that's what i've been doing i've been sticking them in the freezer because they're wonderful you can freeze those and they're just like a fresh one you can't (laughs) freeze the you can't freeze the meyer lemons because they'll come out as mush but you can the lime well it's again watch the watering and hope that we get a little bit more typical weather this next summer we just we just had weather that really toughened the skins which reduced the size of the fruit and caused a lot more splitting when we did start getting good rain but a fun thing about the mexican lime is it can continue to bloom and produce over a much longer period of time than uh, regular persian limes and things so it's a good choice for you well, and it is loaded with limes, and a lot of them are not split. <laughs> good. And I, I was very careful with the watering. But very anyway, good. the next is the lemon, the Meyer lemon. I took it from a cutting from my son in Houston several years ago because I couldn't find a dwarf variety. Right. And, of course, when I talked to you, the cutting was not going to be the dwarf mm-hmm. rootstock, and it isn't. And it's just getting too huge. It's loaded with lemons. And uh, so I want to cut them back after these lemons ripen and mm-hmm. before I put it in the garage under the lights. And uh, I know it's going to probably keep it from producing as much last year, but I don't need that many lemons anyway. Uh, I just need to, they're just, they're just loaded and it's, the branches are just too long. And I need to cut it back, and I wondered when to do that. Well, what I would do is cut it back just as much as you need to to get it inside. 
Uh, and then in a little bit later in the spring, when it comes into bloom for you, that's probably going to be February, cut it back while it's in bloom because that way you can leave the limbs that have the most flowers, cut off the limbs that have fewer flowers, and it, uh, you know, that, that's going to be the very best time. At that point, you can cut it back pretty heavily if you need to. But I, I just, it, this is not a good time of year to do heavy pruning because obviously the light is going to be much less intense, especially if you have to keep it inside for long periods of time. So we want to do our heavy pruning on it when the days are getting longer and the light is starting to get more intense. But I know what you mean about having to do some pruning just to get it inside. Okay, okay, so I'm going to wait, and some of them uh, have the lemons on them that are just hanging on the ground. They're so heavy. And here's one thing, too, about Carolyn, is if you will pick your Myers lemons a little greener, they will freeze just fine. They won't get so mushy, so to speak, but, of course, they're not quite as flavorful. If you leave them on the tree until they are fully, fully ripened, no, they don't freeze nearly as well as the limes do, but if you pick them just a little bit greener, I think you'll find that they you can freeze them intact if you like. Really? Uh, so just, I don't know how green to pick them. I mean, they're supposed to turn yellow, aren't they? Well, feel the, feel the lemon. If it's, once it starts to soften, then it's, you know, getting pretty close to ripe. Pick them, <laughs> try to anticipate and pick them when they're still firm, just very close to ripening. But when they're still firm you're going to find that uh, they will give you a slightly more tart juice, but you can keep them, uh, you can't freeze them much better. Oh, and then you can, then you can squeeze them after you take them sure. out of the freezer. Sure, but you know, oh, the other okay. thing you can do if you have time as they ripen, uh, I've got a lot of friends that don't have enough freezer space to freeze and store the lemons, but they, uh, one friend takes and squeezes the juice, puts it in those little plastic ice trays, will freeze it, pop Mm -hmm. the cubes out, put them in a Ziploc bag, and you can reduce the volume by probably 80%, and the juice stays frozen in very good condition for a long, long time. So uh, that's the other option uh, if you're unsure of, you know exactly how to store it. Right. That's what I was going to do this year. Yeah. That's what I was going to do this year. Works okay. very well. Okay, well, thank you. That will do for my questions. Um and I'll just I'll just uh see what I can do with those persimmons. Start oh. spraying them whenever I see those white flowers. And you'll get ahead of them and of course leave your other spraying to a minimum because I want you to get uh a good population. There's a little beneficial um uh, Oh, it's kind of like a, a fly that parasitizes the eggs, and it is, uh, it's very effective against the regular white fly, the greenhouse white fly, but it took several generations for it to kind of size down because what you're looking at is something called the sweet potato white fly, and it uh, just isn't parasitized as well by this little wasp that normally takes them out. Over time, you'll build up more of these little tiny wasps that will... Uh, do a much better job of getting them under control for you. So uh, hang in there. It's going to be fine. And uh, all of you guys that live way up north, uh, <laughs> hope it's a good winter for you as well. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Carolyn. Bye. All right, uh, next man up is a man with a good name. Good morning, Bob. Good morning there, Bob. Uh, I, I've moved here to Bulverde, and I've got uh, about 12 real nice oak trees on, on my lot. Okay. And- and they haven't had any attention, and 
some of them got this kind of gray like uh, color on the bark, which sure. I don't. Is, that's not a big deal, is it? No, not at all. They're sort of a flat gray material that is what we call the call a lichen, L-I-C-H-E-N, that um, does absolutely nothing to the tree. The second thing is this kind of fuzzy, bigger masses that grow, which are actually a bromeliad called the Tillandsia. Tillandsia, uh, let's see, that's Tillandsia recurvata. And uh, they are taking nothing from the tree. They can get thick enough that if you get so many of them growing in the top of the tree, the lower limbs will thin out a little bit, but those, they've been around on these trees for hundreds of years. Don't let anybody tell you you have to cut them out or pick them out. I think you do much more damage to the tree trying to remove them than you ever do leaving them in the tree. There are sprays that you can put on them which will kill the Tillandsias, but it doesn't make them jump out of the tree, and I think, you know, dead ball moss is uglier than live ball moss. So I would tend to just, I think you probably have a lot more projects to do around that new property than to worry about those oak trees well the, the other thing is is i'm looking for somebody to come out and look at them and make recommendations and then then somebody a, a, a tree a trimmer pro not, not just some wood butcher that can can straighten these things out they got a lot of dead wood and just a lot of things that need attention well i will tell you a good arborist is, is a you know a good thing to find and um if you want somebody that will that is a consulting arborist, he doesn't do the actual work, but the guy that I have probably most respect for in this part of the world is a fellow named David Vaughn, V-A-U-G-H-A-N, and um, you can Google that, or if you have something to write with, uh, I can give you his phone number, which is 210-788-4988. And if okay. you uh, if you want, I I still think the best arborist company out there is a company called Etter E T T E R Etter Tree Care. And the only problem with them is they are so busy. It'll be two or three months before uh, they can come out and do the work. But when you do that, you're right in the best time of the year for doing the pruning. So um, they are the number one arborist. Arborist. I have other people that I would recommend to you if you're just removing a tree or just, you know, need to do uh, very simple things. But where you're really concerned about the health, the overall shape of the tree, things like that, I personally think Edder is certainly worth waiting for. Uh, their phone number yep. is 210-654-8733. But uh, like I say, David's a consulting arborist. He will get with you, tell you what needs to be done, you know, and he's he's pretty prompt every now and then he takes off and goes fly fishing which you can do which you're sem- when you're semi-retired but uh sure. he he worked for edder for many years and then just said uh when i turn 70 i don't have to work this hard anymore <laughs> so anyway those those are my two suggestions for both consulting and work uh like say just you know basic hack whack and stack i might have some others that i could suggest to you but it sounds like you have some trees you really want to protect and those are the two guys that i'd recommend Okay, well, thank you so much, and I appreciate your time. It's always a pleasure, Bob. I appreciate your call. Good morning, Diane. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you for calling. I actually have a couple of questions. Um, I live out north on 306 Canyon Lake. We have an upper quarter property, and mostly it's just weeds and 
a little bit of natural grass on here. Hill Country uh, Natural. Yeah, and every year for many years now, I have planted rye grass out here over the winter to to try to keep some of the weeds and things down in the spring. Mm-hmm. But last year, I, I am wondering, does rye grass draw or are fleas attracted to rye grass? No. Okay. No, there's uh-huh. nothing. Unfortunately, fleas may be attracted by the water that you're putting out to keep your ryegrass going when we've had... It's been weird weather patterns, but it's just typical Texas. We go from, you know, alternative droughts to floods. And right. we have we had a pretty long period of lots of good moisture last winter and spring, and it led to a huge increase in the flea populations. But it was the moisture, not the ryegrass, that got so many more fleas going out there. Okay, so... We don't really water our rye a whole lot because it seems to do pretty well out here. Mm-hmm. But it's always wet in the morning. It's always kind of damp yep. from the moisture overnight. So that's not something that's drawing fleas. No, and, and again, it you know, just the fact that the grass is going to hold a little bit more moisture around it. Rye grass is naturally a grass that is um, fairly well hydrated, so to speak. But it's, uh, no, it's not going to be any any more attractive to fleas and just some good leaf litter and things like that. And plus okay. they love all the nice little warm blooded furry fuzzy things we have from the possums to the squirrel to the deer. And wow. you probably overrun with those things. And uh, that's where your biggest flea increase comes from because the fleas need, you know, a blood meal in order yeah. to uh, live and grow. And um, it, nothing's really, I mean, the, where you can treat with beneficial nematodes, they are very, very effective in flea control, but we've just got too many furry critters and the uh, the fleas are cyclical. And right now we're in, in their high cycle. That's where everybody's got more of them than we want. Yeah. Yeah. I've lived out here for about 22 years and I've never had any problems until last year. And it was just horrible last year. Okay, my second question has to do with um, antique roses. Um, Canyon Lake was on water restrictions for months out here, so I had bought a rose in the spring, planted it, uh, well, last fall, I guess, and planted it. It did beautiful. Then we went into water restrictions, and then we had this horrible heat in August. Um, Every leaf on my rose is dead. All the branches are still perfectly green. Mm -hmm. Can I just cut that thing back and just let it kind of start all over again for next you, spring? You can. Um, it, I wish we'd done this, uh, you know, a month or two ago where it would have a chance to put on some new growth, which could then harden off before what passes for winter here. Um, it's Cutting it back is going to stimulate new growth, which is a good thing. But that new growth, if we get a freeze immediately after we cut it back and the new growth starts, that can be somewhat damaging to it. And I hate to tell you, but you may be looking at frost up there toward the end of next week. I'm seeing 39 degrees as forecast for Bernie one day next week. So I would one thing that will really help that rose and it doesn't take a lot of water to do you need to maintain some soil moisture but the rose is not going to use as much moisture since it doesn't have as many leaves on it but it will absorb a lot of moisture directly if you just get out there every chance you get and just spray down the trunk spray down the limbs spray down that green tissue that's on the limbs and that's going to maintain the rose quite well until we get to February when you can go in there and give it a pretty severe pruning. Do you remember what variety of rose it is? 
Well, you know, I just got through looking at the tag on it, and the only thing it says is uh, climbing pink rose. Okay, and it's, it's probably it's climbing climbing pinky is probably what it is. Yeah, yeah, it and, is. That's what it is. Yeah, it's almost certainly a grafted rose, and as you've heard me talking, grafted roses are not as long-lived and are not as hardy as roses on their own roots, but it's certainly a pretty rose. It uh, uh, And it is one of those, unfortunately you're not going to want to go through and prune back every limb on it. You're going to want to take some of the limbs and cut them back, and some of them leave at their full length because climbing pinky, being a traditional climber, forms its buds in the fall, and if you prune too heavily, you'll have zero roses next year. So okay, we like just waiting until maybe February to prune. I would wait till wait and see how it looks in February, and then prune maybe fifty percent of the limbs back when the fifty percent of the remaining limbs have their flowers, and it should bloom pretty well for you next spring. After okay. those limbs have uh, finished their flowering, then you go ahead and cut those back, and that way you've got the whole size down, but you haven't sacrificed you know, at least having some blooms next year. Wow. So I think this is a, this is from um, Rose Emporium, so I'm not sure it's a grafted Oh, rose. okay. Well, if it's from Rose Emporium, then uh, um, it, it probably isn't grafted, but because it is a climber, the difference in climbers and uh, bush roses, climbers produce their roses on wood that grew the previous summer and fall, Bush roses okay. produce their buds on new rose on new wood that grows in the spring. So okay. the pruning would be the same. Uh, the longevity of the rose will be much better since it is, uh, you know, on its own roots rather than being grafted. But I would still follow the same pruning procedures. If you prune too heavily before it blooms in the spring, you just end up with no flowers at all that year. Uh, right. Okay. All right. Well, that's all my questions. So Great questions. I appreciate it. All right. <laughs> oh, and by the way. See if you can yeah. get a little rainwater catchment going, uh, even if you don't go to all the trouble with filters and things to make it drinkable for you. Rainwater is still the best water in the world to have around to uh, use when you face those water restrictions because you're going to uh, you're going to face them again. That's just the nature of living in the hill country. And Canyon Lake uh, Water System, they're good people, but uh, they don't have unlimited resources. So a little bit of rainwater, your, ra- your roses would really appreciate a rainwater tank. Okay, that sounds like a good idea. All right, well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you, Diane. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's go ahead and talk to Melinda. Good morning, Melinda. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Yesterday you were talking with someone about the ends of the branches, all the leaves dying, Mm -hmm. something sucking on them, but I didn't hear what you said it was. Well, the what we were talking about is actually something that cuts the limbs off. Uh, it's yes. called a twig girdler, and the limbs don't or the leaves don't turn brown really on the tree. They turn brown. The the limbs come tumbling down with green leaves all over them. The girdler has laid its eggs out further out on the limb, and it's just that's their way of getting the limb down to the ground to where the eggs can hatch and the larvae can move into the soil. If you have a healthy tree, but you have tips 
of the limbs suddenly having a fair number of dead leaves on them, that's just a little drought symptom, and that shows up on oak trees, shows up on elms, and that's just from having gone for four and a half months with virtually no rain, and it's the tree's way of just getting through the drought. They should come back out if we get some good rains over the winter months. Uh, those trees will regrow quickly in the spring. If the limbs are coming down green and then the leaves dying on them afterwards, that's the twig girdlers, and you need to gather up all those little limbs as they come down and either put them in the compost pile or burn them if you legally can or dispose of them one way or another because those are the limbs that have the girdler eggs still on or in them. Okay, this is a wisteria. Okay. And it, the whole, all the leaves on that end fall down but they're all dead by the time they fall down okay that's not a twig girdle on wisteria that's almost certainly a little bit of drought damage is it a true wisteria or is it what they call an evergreen wisteria does it bloom in the spring or does it bloom in the fall blooms in the spring okay that's that's your regular wisteria chinensis and just uh, how long have you had it it's been at this house i'm sure for 50 years okay it uh, It's just suffering a little drought damage. I would fertilize it. I'd probably put a little green sand around it. The Chinese wisteria really needs that. It's either Chinese or Texas wisteria, which would be even better. It's, it's Chinese, unfortunately. Okay. It's uh, it's just you, it's got its roots spread so wide, you need to water it over a wider area. And, okay. you know, four months of drought is hard on you and me and the wisterias. And I watered lots, but not far out. Yeah, it's uh, this is one case where uh, if if it were me, if it were an area where I wasn't mowing, I would get not uh, soaker hoses because I think they're worthless. They put out 90% of their water in the first 10% of the hose. But yes, get, I agree. Yeah, get maybe 50 feet of uh, drip, good drip tubing by Rainbird. Um, and just kind of make an ever-expanding spiral going out from the center of it to where you're watering 10, 12 feet out away from the base of the plant. The uh, pressure-compensated drip puts out the water very, very evenly, puts out nine-tenths of a gallon per hour per emitter. You've got 50 emitters, let's say, so you're only using like uh, 45 gallons of water when you water, and 100% of it goes into the ground. It's by far the most efficient way uh, where you need to spread the water over a large area without using a sprinkler that sprays it up in the air where it evaporates. It's also, under most cities' drought restrictions, uh, watering with the drip system is uh, either totally unregulated or it's much more liberal than when you can apply the water, and that'll be a good thing. Okay, that sounds great. Thank you so much. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for the call and the great question. All right, back to those phone lines. Richard, Tony, Lori, and Cindy in that order. Good morning, Richard. How you doing, Bob? Doing well, thank you. How about you? Not too bad. Question. I have been unable to harvest a single cherry tomato. Uh, every time I go out and check, I see it's swarmed with what the Internet is telling me is a leaf-footed bug. To me, right. it looks like an old-fashioned stink bug. Well, it is a type of stink bug. You can look at those broadened back legs, those flattened legs, and that gives you the clue right there. When I'm in the garden in the late summer months or whenever they show up, literally when I'm picking, in the other hand, I've got a little spray bottle of this stuff called spinosad soap. 
It is uh, short of your thumb and forefinger. It's the only thing that I've found that really does a pretty good job of knocking them down. Remember, too, that when you see those swarms of little red bugs with black legs, those are the immature ones, and they are very, very susceptible. You'll kill them almost, just not quite instantly, but almost. But uh, the spinosad soap is the best thing that I have found against that particular leaf-footed bug. And I tell you, try to get them early in the season before you start getting large numbers of them. Okay. The, the only thing I had on hand was Captain Jack's dead bug brew. And it's fair, but the, somehow the common, combination with the insecticidal soap in it makes it a whole lot better. And I followed it up with DE, and mm-hmm. now I have no fruit, so obviously there's no bugs right there. So. Yep. Okay, Spinosad it is then. Waste, wasting your time with DE, but Spinosad soap will do the job for you. That'll work. Thanks, Richard. Appreciate it. All right, let's see here. Next up is Tony. Good morning, Tony. Bob, good morning. This is Tony out in Marion again. Yes, sir. How are you doing today? Man, oh, doing great. Beautiful day, man. Be out. Hey, I have two questions for you. Thanks for the name of the arborist. <clears throat> oh, sure. Do you know, I'm trying to, I call it mini homestead. I'm not trying to grow enough to eat, but just grow <laughs> enough. <laughs> hey, go for so everything you can. It's better than anything you can buy in the grocery store. Yeah, the deer love me. Yeah, oh, yeah. And uh, for all I'm growing for them. But, hey, do you know of a designer or consultant for organic, homesteady kind of things, you know, orchards and, you know, a decent-sized garden and that kind of thing? I don't know anyone who does that specifically. Um, There are lots of good resources out there. There is an organization called TOFGA, T-O-F-G-A, Stands for the Texas Organic Gardeners, Farmers and Gardeners Association, you know, T-O-F-G-A. You might Google them, and they actually have uh, workshops periodically. They're aimed at people who would like to set up a little roadside fruit stand type of thing. Um, the uh, You've got a fella out in right there in Marion, James, and I don't even know James's last name, calls the show regularly. And he has a produce stand there in Marion. And I know he works with a number of people and kind of, oh, almost like an apprenticeship style. And uh, he is one heck of a good organic gardener. And those are two pretty direct contact people. But beyond that, I would subscribe to the Acres USA magazine. They send you some wonderful email articles as well. And those are probably my top three resources. All right. Well, thank you very much. Very good. Well, That's I appreciate it. You get out and have a good day of it. And uh, tell James I said hello when you talk to him. Sure will. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. Bye. Nine fifty-five fifty-five. But every line's taken right now, so uh, hang on a couple of minutes before you dial. We'll have a line available shortly, though, because I'm going to say good morning to Laurie. What's going on today? Good morning, Bob. Hey. Just doing very well. Back to 100%. How can I help you? <laughs> Wonderful. Glad to hear that. Thank you. Hey, I heard a gentleman call yesterday about the Moringa Oliveira. Right. And I successfully grow it here in Dale, up near Austin. Okay. And I have access to seeds. I actually have some that I would be willing to sell. And I can, uh, there's a shop up here that sells them. There's a Moringa tree farm up here. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, so he can find me. Um, he can either message me through um, Messenger at Homeopathic Nuts, 
okay, homeopathic nut. I'd rather not be giving out phone numbers because people don't. <laughs> I tell you what you can do, though. I'll put you back on hold when we finish our conversation. You can give your number to Chris, and I will give it okay. out to selected individuals. But I just, uh, there are too many weirdos in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm careful. I appreciate that. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm careful about that. But uh, uh, do you have uh, a website or a regular email address somebody could reach you at? It's the same thing. I was just going to say homeopathicnut at AOL.com. That sounds like a real good thing. And uh, I appreciate your willingness to share. Any quick tips you would like to give people on how you use uh, how you use the product? Yes, the leaves are very nutritious. Uh, that's what got me interested in it. Okay. And when I found out there's more nutrition than spinach, uh, you can just put the leaves in some salad. You can dry it and make teas from it. I drink Moringa tea. Uh, there's many ways you can use it. It's highly nutritious, very good for you. Have you found that you need to give them any winter protection up there? Because, again, I know that they are much more widely grown in tropical areas, but uh, you certainly aren't tropical up near Austin. Now, how much winter protection have you had to uh, give the trees? So they do die back in the winter, so mm-hmm. you just cut them off uh, at the stem and just, you know, the trunk, and they will come back in the spring. Very good. And have you been through a really cold winter? Because we have not had a really cold winter. Have you had them enough years that you've experienced, uh, you know, when they freeze, actually freeze down near ground level? Or have you tried, have you needed to wrap the trunks or anything? Because one of these years, who knows, hopefully not this year, but we're going to get back to some of those, you know, low teens and some of the things that uh, can be more damaging. Uh, Any thoughts there? I have not had them to that degree of temperature. Uh, I've only been growing them for a couple of years now. Uh, the lady in Cedar Creek that has the farm over there, I don't believe she protects them at all. She just does the same thing, cuts them off at the bottom, and the next spring they grow back beautifully. Very good. Well, listen, I can't tell you how much I enjoy sharing. I'm going to put you back on hold, and I'll get Chris to get your information, and we'll share it with people who deserve to receive it, shall we say, Laurie. Thank you again. Yeah. Sounds great. Thank you, Bob. Have a wonderful day. You do the same. All right. To the top of the board is Cindy. Good morning, Cindy. Hey, good morning, Bob. Good morning. Did you did you ever get the text and pictures? I certainly. I've uh, I got a lot of text and pictures, but what am I looking for pictures of? Oh, of the bulbine, of the bulbine. Bulbine. Yes, yes. and I just uh, wasn't in a position to respond. That is somewhat normal with bulbine, and it not is not going to regrow a lot of roots until it warms up. Um, now you have a greenhouse, you have propagating mats. If you, I would divide it up into little clumps that are maybe three inches across and just you don't cut the dead dry roots off because they'll help stabilize the plant in the ground. But if you want to repot it, late. if if you will, what's that? Okay, too late. Okay, well, what you're going to have to do is basically repot them and put, you know, a couple of chopsticks or something in place to hold them in place because that top's going to flop around and it's going to break off new roots as they try to grow and uh, um, they probably will keep for a fairly long period of time but since you do have propagating mats and things like that if you want to pop them up uh, pot them up stabilize them in the soil put them on your propagating mat you'll find they regrow the roots fairly quickly 
Otherwise, it's going to be spring before we get any roots on them. And uh, I'd say they're probably going to survive. They're going to dehydrate a bit. They're not going to be real pretty, but um, they are a pretty tough plant. So uh, they're they're going to survive one way or the other. But if you want pretty plants, if you want more plants, you can set out in early spring, pot them up, and put them on the propagating mat. Okay, how deep do you stick those little fingerlings? Well, you don't want to you don't want to bury the leaves at all. The bulbine and most other things that are succulent like that, if you get the crown of the plant too low, then it just flat rots. So it's um, I, I just at the point at the roots where the roots come out from the base, whatever is left there, uh, that's the level you want to have it at. That's why I think you may have to just barely plant it. And then use something to kind of hold it in place. I mean, it could be um, it could be a stake with a little loop of uh, twist tape or something like that. But you just need to hold mm-hmm. them steady, so to speak, while the new roots start developing. Okay, and then like use a, a, any root stimulator or a uh, little Super Thrive, anything? little Garrett juice, uh, so anything like that's going to help. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I've. I've I can stick them in the greenhouse easily. So. Oh, very good. That's and where the that's other, where the, the others that we have. I don't know if this is correct or not, but at least it looks better. You know where it flops. Yeah. In the center. Uh huh. We put uh, more soil around it. Yeah. And then some soil in the middle, and I, it kind of propped it back up. Okay. I would go for soil around it. Soil in the middle, especially if we get into some moist weather. Uh, it's probably going to rot where you've got the soil all around uh, in the middle where it's just propping it up on the outside. I think you're going to be fine. Okay. Yeah, we can wash it off, the one, what's in the middle, if we need to or... or yeah, that's that's what I... out or something. That's what I would do. Okay. Okay, the other question I have is, will you go over humic acid, what it does, is it necessary? It, do I use it in addition to fertilizer? Um, some of the people in India, they're talking about humic acid, and I'm not cust- accustomed to using it, so I'm just wondering well, what it and what And that's, it that's a, a very good question, and it's a question that I ask of Dr. Elaine Ingham, who is probably the soil microbiologist that I respect more than anybody else in this world. And I was of the impression that there was, you know, that you could identify something that you could call humic acid and you would be able to get a chemical structure for that. Dr. Ingham informed me that there were probably 5,000 different kinds of humic acids. So um, humic acids are acids that are produced, so to speak, as compost really fully decomposes when we go basically from mulch to compost and then as you know as things compress and age uh, we go into what we would call dry humate and ultimately with you know a few million years in pressure we get coal and oil and gas and things like that so the dry humates produce these many different acids uh, just from water and the, the, the humate itself. So they are a way, basically, of adding carbon to the soil. They are a way of adding energy to the soil. 
when you get to the humate stage, you have very little oxygen left in the molecules. It's basically carbon and hydrogen. And, uh, you know, just the more carbon we get back in our soils, the more energy we put back in our soils. It's one of the big problems with modern agriculture. Uh, Medina has probably led the way with using uh, liquid humates and humic acids and things in their fertilizers and their products like their root stimulator or their uh, rather soil activator. So humates are used mainly in the soil building process. They work in conjunction with your fertilizers. They don't bring nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, uh, maybe a little bit of iron. They do bring some uh, of the uh, paramagne- paramagnetic energy but we're mainly using them to put carbon back into the soil, which is always a good thing. So I would say they work with your fertilizers. They certainly do not replace them. Does that help? Yes, because I guess um, what with these desert rose people, they're using core, uh-huh. which core doesn't really have anything in it. Well, it, it does as it breaks down, but it breaks down very slowly, and that's what makes it such a good soil amendment. But, uh, um, yeah, that's uh, humic acids would be just fine. And rather than going out and spending a lot of money on something that says humic acids, uh, you can buy the Medina product called Liquid Humates and get exactly what you're yeah. looking for at a very reasonable price. That's what I did buy. I bought, Excellent. bought that. Y'all had some, and I, I bought that. Um, but I don't know exactly how often to use it and the quantity to use it. Well, I would, I would follow Medina's directions on the label. I'm not sure how much water, how much liquid they have added to it. It is never going to burn and there's no such thing as overusing it, but there's a point of diminishing returns where it's just not economical to overdo it. Uh, but I would, I'd basically go with the directions that are on the bottle and just remember that in the semi-dormant season for desert rose and things like that, you'll use it at about half the strength that you'll use it in the, in the growing season for them. Yeah, right now I'm, I'm doing some seeds, so they're, the Indian people are telling me to use the humic acid but first i had to say well wait a minute i gotta see if i can find it first <laughs> well and you I can found it. yeah and you can use medina also produces a product called dry humate you can actually mix uh-huh. some of that into the soil that you're germinating those seeds in and you'll oh, okay. you'll have a good source there of the same materials already in the soil for the seeds to make use of yeah yeah, that would that would be great. Do you carry that? You know, I believe we do. Um, give them a call over there. I won't be back to the nursery till of course afternoon, but uh, I know we've got the liquid humates, and if we don't have the dry humates, we can certainly get them for you. Okay. Yeah, I I, I got the liquid, so I can try that. But when in the spring, when we you know repot with fresh soil and all, maybe I'll stick some of that in there. I think it'd be a great idea. I'd love to know how it works for you. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. And just, I trust that you had a great birthday. Well, it was, and I just haven't had time to text back. But uh, tell tell that hubby of yours with his uh, with his insulting comments about AARP and things like that, remind him that he's the one that's retired. 
Yeah. My best to both uh, of you guys. Yeah, yeah. You, you constantly. Well, my best to both of you guys, and y'all have a great Sunday, Cindy. I appreciate the call. Okay. Thank All you. Right. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Terry, of course, the gentleman I'm talking about, was one of our first responders up in Kendall County for many years. <laughs> Just real good people with real good senses of humor. Um, let's go ahead and uh, head over Hallisville Way. Good morning, Bobby. Hey, Bob. Well, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you for calling. How can I help today? Hey, we, we, we have a builder's home that, that, that we bought a model home about 10 years ago. Okay. And, and the, the beds in the front of the house have, you know, they were it was a model home. So yep. they planted a couple of oak trees in, in these beds in front of the house, and, the, and they're not that far from the house. And and there's also azaleas and 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 uh, Indian hawthorns in the bed, and we're having trouble. My wife loves to plant uh, color and and things in, in in the soil, and the soil is just it, it's just so matted and so you can't do anything to loosen it up. Is is that due to the trees in the bed, or no? Or is there anything we can do? The I'm sorry. Any anything that increases organic material in the soil will soften the soil. And nature does it over thousands of years. We try to speed it up. The things which will do the best, I mean the the best instant softening anywhere you can is just to blend or work uh, compost into the soil. Um, you need to you need to decide what you want to keep and what you maybe want to replace. Um, the azaleas, I can promise you, are going to be tough to maintain unless you just have, you know, uh, want to spend a lot of time doing it. And I can tell you that azaleas and Indian hawthorn in the same bed are not going to work. If there's enough light for the Indian hawthorn to do well, the azaleas are going to do poorly no matter what you do because azaleas are for shade. Indian hawthorn is for full sun. So, I mean, if you just love azaleas, uh, I'm going to suggest a variety of azaleas that rebloom to you. Uh, they, uh, they, oh, they go under s- several different names, but uh, there, there are some good reblooming azaleas out there, but they're tough to grow here, and they are real water hogs and they are for shade only. Um, If you've got Indian hawthorns in a bed that is either shaded from the house or shaded by those oak trees, you might as well rip them out and plant something else that's going to grow there, either transplant them to a sunnier spot or replace them with something else. And uh, the first thing you need to do, like I say, is decide what you want to keep, what needs to go. Then in the area where you have bare soil exposed, your fastest way to soften it is to actually work compost good manure compost into it and then you maintain that softness by adding things like dry molasses by watering with things like medina plus and of course staying 100 percent organic in the fertilizers you add and that's going to not only keep the soil loose but it's going to help help it stay loose and actually get even more loose over time now tell me how how close those oak trees are actually to your foundation Probably not more than uh, eight or ten feet. Oh, that's not too close. No, that doesn't worry me. I was afraid you were going to say eight or ten inches. And, uh, no, no, no. They're, 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 they're a good eight, eight feet, eight to ten feet. Oh, very good. Well, you're going to have... Can, okay. Yeah, can, can we take and work 
humane. I, I have some. I've got a farm in Schulenburg. Yeah. And I, 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 I bought a bunch of humate and spread it in my hay patch, and, it, uh-huh. and it's the same. It's the dry. It really looks like 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 lava rock. Is that yeah, what dry humate looks like? It's pretty wow. much ground up coal. It's a very low grade coal. Is what it amounts to. Okay. And okay. yes, you can certainly work that directly into the soil. And will that help a lot? Will it, that make a big difference? Or? It will over the next ten years. It will not make okay. a big difference. Yeah, it won't make a big difference. I might, I might, I might be looking at them from the nursing home by then. <laughs> I sincerely <laughs> doubt that. A man that gets out and works in uh, in his in his farm in his garden, uh, you tend to put off that for a long time. It's not going to be nearly as fast as compost. I think it would be a good thing to do. But uh, you know, you've got the you've got the carbon, you've got that into the soil. Now let's activate it with some molasses. If you're going to work the dry humate in, work some dry molasses in as well, or else follow it up with a good liquid molasses drench, because that's going to give the energy to the soil microbes that are then going to go to work on that dry humate and start improving your soil a great deal. So um, I would use dry humate, you know, along with an energy source, and molasses, either liquid or dry, is probably going to be your best source for that. And it's it's okay to do that in the compost and everything? Oh, absolutely. Uh, as long as you have a home compost size pile. Now, if you have a compost pile that's 20 feet long and 10 feet high, you've got to be a little concerned that you don't get it so hot that it uh, self-combusts, that it ignites. That's never going to happen in a regular home compost pile. But you can ask Gardenville, you can ask New Earth, you could ask Fertile Garden. They tell me that everyone that's been composting for very long is at some point set their compost on fire just from spontaneous combustion. But, uh, you know, a home-size uh, compost pile, no, you have no problems there. Just the bags are fine. Uh, that's what we'd be using. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Good morning, Richard. Good morning, Bob. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. I know you're doing well because you've said it a few times already this morning. <laughs> Thank goodness. Hey, so I had a question about my grass and soil in the backyard. Okay. And so uh, listening to the previous caller about the soil remediation and, and how to take care of it, I'm convinced that um, I'm definitely on your plan, and I know all the tricks so far, but um, there's one thing that I know I can't substitute for, and that's sunlight. But Yes, sir. That being said, um, I have Bermuda in my backyard, and I have some big live oak trees along with the rock wall that runs kind of towards northwest. So I, I probably get the minimum amount of sunlight that I can have and still grow Bermuda. But um, my soil is so hard because it's still country soil, so it's only an inch or two. So as it relates to ryegrass, I've never heard you – I've heard that sometimes you should just let your yard rest over the, like the winter months, but I wanted to get your thoughts on them if it could benefit the soil and softening it in addition to all the other things I've done with molasses and uh, compost and all that stuff. The effects that rye will have on softening your soil are minimal. Um, I mean, rye is great to reduce mud problems. Rye is great to use when you want to have something green out there. If you have pets, especially puppy dogs, um, <laughs> you, your, your carpet will stay much nicer and your wife will stay much happier if you have ryegrass so uh, less mud gets tracked in. But as far as benefiting the soil, no. There is a minimal benefit just from the root material that is left behind. But our best soil build, builders, our best soil softeners are actually soil bacteria. They produce something that 
Its technical name is sticky substance, and it is what builds the, we call it the crumb structure of the soil. A lot of people think, you know, you have to be able to see organic material. Just not true. As far as tons of organic material in the soil, your microbes do far more than any plant roots are ever going to do. So, yeah, they loosen the soil up a little bit because they grow roots down in there. They create air passageway down into the soil. Um, same thing earthworms do. So they have some effect, but it is minimal compared to the other things that you're doing to turn that really poor soil into much better soil. Some of your deeper-rooted grasses, some of your native grasses, would do a better job of improving the soil, but unfortunately, as you so accurately observed, they're going to have to have sun, and that's why when you get out in the hill country, you start looking underneath the trees, all you're going to see are some of the sedges growing, and you're going to have pretty hard soil there. Sure. And so about half of my yard is, is, is I'd say it thrives, but mm-hmm. about half of it where it's under the, the, the oak tree, it because it, it doesn't probably thicken up until summer when it's really hot or uh-huh. getting as much sunlight as it does, it, it almost over the winter kind of turns into mud. And that's sure. the only appeal I was thinking to winterize. So, um it, it, I guess what you're saying is it doesn't. It wouldn't hurt it. Oh no, set no. It back in the spring. Like no, the spring. and anywhere you can in your yard, put a layer of compost over it. Uh, sure. That's that's going to soften more than anything else. And the problem is, the healthier you get those trees, the thicker they're going to get. And the thicker they get, the thinner your Bermuda's going to get. Um, if you want grass, it sounds. I mean, if Bermuda's doing anything, it sounds like there's enough light that St. Augustine would grow out there. But um, it's just, you know, the ongoing battle. St. Augustine doesn't use any more water than Bermuda does to stay looking nice. But if you stop watering St. Augustine, it dies. If you stop watering Bermuda, it turns brown and comes back when you get water. But this is going to be a problem that's going to get worse over time rather than better. Your soil condition, your soil tilth, as they call it, will improve. But I'm afraid your Bermuda grass won't. Sure. And uh, real quick, the I know you've talked about several varieties. You know, I definitely want the shorter variety and an annual if I just wanted to try it this year. But what would be where where would I go to get it and what kind of seed? Um, uh, where are you located? Out here in Comal County. Comal County. Look for anybody that carries uh, a ryegrass blend that's called Pantera, or called SOS is another name for one of the good ryegrass blends. Um, I, what I would stay away from, don't let anybody sell you the old Oregon ryegrass, but, uh, this company that, uh, puts out is called, it's either Brandenburg or Bradenburg. They're probably the leading ryegrass specialist in the country. And they've come out with a couple of new compact ryegrass blends and you'll find most nurseries will carry it. I know we've got it at shades of green. I suspect, um, Gosh, you don't have many nurseries left out. I, I don't know if Schultz Nursery is still around in Marion. If so, they may carry it. Uh, but any any of the good nurseries, anybody that deals with Adam's Supply can get it. And um, I'm sure a lot of the feed stores will have it as well. But like I say, it's important to stay away from the Oregon ryegrass. She'll hate that stuff. But uh, some, of the, uh, some of the blends are the smaller varieties. Any of them are going to be good for you. I call that Oregon long grass stew grass. It's not right grass. It's, <laughs> it's so wet and soggy. So. All right, Bob. Sound, it sounds like you've had some experience there, Richard. <laughs> Thanks very much. Always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Mm, goodbye. Steve's turn. Good morning, Steve. 
Good morning. How are you today, Bob? I'm just doing really well, thank you. How about yourself? Good. Oh, doing well. Hey, I got I got so many questions we could talk for days, but <laughs> two, two to begin with. Okay. Um, I know it's not the right time of year, but when do I put out the cornmeal to cut back on my grass burrs? Well, it's not cornmeal. It is corn gluten meal, and in my opinion, it's kind of a waste of time because corn gluten meal and any other pre-emergent, you have to realize they don't kill the seed. They kill, or what they do, they prevent the seedling as it germinates from forming a root system so it dehydrates and dies. Here are the two problems with grass burrs. Uh, They can germinate anywhere from March through about October, which means you would have to be putting out your pre-emergent four, five, six times over the summer months to be effective, and that's going to get cost prohibitive. Second thing is that even if you get it out at the perfect time, if we go into a real rainy spell where that little seedling can sit there for a while without roots, without dehydrating, then it's not going to kill it because it's not the seed that it kills. It's a little seedling. My personal experience has been, and let me tell you, I had a an area of grass burrs that was so thick the dogs wouldn't go in it, and even wearing my high-top hiking boots, I wouldn't venture into it. But I put about half an inch of compost over it. Uh, this has been maybe five or six years ago. Put about a half an inch of compost on it. Um, Mother Nature gave me a little moisture a couple of times over the winter months. The next spring, I think I pulled up five grass burr plants in the entire area, which was probably about 40 by 60. So I'm finding that the humic acids, the things in good manure compost, they have almost totally worked as a pre-emergent for me. And with corn gluten meal, you're going to get some benefit just from the fertilizer content in it. And corn gluten meal used to be cheap and uh, pretty good value, but then they started using it in animal feed in China and some other places. The price went through the roof, and I am hate to say it, uh, and I know Howard Garrett and some of the others still speak fairly highly of it, but my experience with it here in South Texas just hasn't been nearly as good as using just good old straight manure compost. Okay, well, I'm, I can do that because we do that for the garden anyway, so it's real easy to just move some of that into the, uh, into the yard area. <laughs> well, I would not say that it's real easy. I would say that it's, <laughs> I, I call it a real good source of exercise, but uh, there's plenty of, there are plenty of calories expended, shall we say, and most of us could, you know, benefit from doing that, but uh, anytime, okay. if you think that job is easy, I'll have you lined up with work for the next hundred oh, years. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bob. Well, then the next question I have is, um, uh, we live in Hallettsville. Okay. And um, our, our best nursery has quit dealing with the public, more or less. And so I was wondering if you could recommend a decent nursery that has organics and, and good quality stuff anywhere in the Victoria area or the Hallettsville, LaGrange area, somewhere around the area that you know of. Call, call Laurie over at Earthworks in Victoria. They're wonderful people. If they can't help you, I'm almost certain they can recommend someone who would. I know that on DirtDoctor.com, Howard maintains a list of nurseries pretty much all across the state that deal in organics. But uh, um, Victoria's not too terribly far away from you. And uh, I, I, I think the folks at Earthworks are absolutely outstanding people to do business with. And if they can't help you, I'll bet you they can recommend somebody who can. 
All right. Sounds great. Thanks a lot, Bob. Have a good day. You do the same, Steve. Appreciate the call. Thank you. You bet. Bye. All right. Let's talk to Jerry. Uh, you're up next. Good morning. Is it Gary or Jerry? Gary. Gary. Okay. Good morning. Your phone's cutting out on me. I've got, we have some little. Little plants have come up. Can we dig those up now and transplant them or wait or? What what kind of plants are they, Gary? I think they're the salvias. They're kind of the gray leaves, and okay. they put out the little purplish pink flowers. Okay. Here's what you do when a seedling comes up. The first leaves that come out are actually a part of the seed. They're called cotyledons or seed leaves. They're usually either oblong or rounded. And then out from the middle, in between those leaves, are where your first true leaves begin to emerge. I like to let, and this applies for just about every kind of plant in the world, I want to see two sets of true leaves. I want to see two sets of leaves above the cotyledons, and then those are the perfect size to transplant into small pots to grow on. Okay. All right. These are, uh, they're not tiny anymore. They're yeah. Tall. Yeah, they're probably okay. certainly, almost certainly have some true leaves on them. So I think you'd be okay. in uh, a great time to transplant. Water them in good with Garrett juice or Medina has to grow or something like that. They should take off directly, and grow with. I can put them directly into the ground. I would rather see weather is very uncertain at this time of the year, and you're going to have almost 100% success if you put them in little small 4-inch pots. And any nursery's probably got a stack of pots they will give you. If you transplant them directly in the ground, it's just kind of hit and miss as to how well they're going to do. Okay. And I have the lilies that have the big red flowers on them. Do I need to divide them? Not at this time. If you need to divide them, and you don't really have to, they don't they don't do don't necessarily any okay. better, but you can certainly spread them around further. But you wait not until they finish flowering, but until that foliage dies back in the summertime. Mark where those spots are, and then late summer or fall, that's the time to dig and divide them. Okay, because they're still green. Some of them, oh, are, yeah. you know, have the leaves on them, but they're fine where they are, so they can. Just stay there. Oh, yeah. And multiply. (laughs) That's the easiest way to do it. Right. Okay. Thank you, Bob. We'll finish up calls with Louise and with Scott. And Louise is first. Good morning, Louise. Good morning. Good morning. I just wanted to respond to the gentleman that called a week or two ago that his uh, oxblood lilies hadn't bloomed. Right. And you responded that that was because it hadn't rained. And so it got me to thinking, and I have a I have a, a clump of bulbs that somehow over the years are almost above the ground, and they right. were completely dormant, and I thought they were dead. Well, I got a bucket of rainwater and poured <laughs> it on them, and in four days, I had a beautiful stand of lilies blooming. Isn't it, it amazing? And it was very exciting to me, so... If it doesn't rain and you have a source of rainwater, that might be it. I have one more reason to collect some rainwater. And um, do this, Louise. Uh, Let them come up. Let them them make their green foliage like they always do. 
at the end of the season, when that green foliage dies back, go ahead and dig that clump up. Now, you can leave them all clumped together if you like and uh, plant them a little bit deeper. I guess you could, you know, build up a little bit around them because those bulbs are going to last better and last longer if they uh, get back down in the ground again. But right now, just leave them alone, fertilize them, water them, take care of them. When the foliage dies back this summer, as it always does, at that point, I want you to, you know, protect those bulbs. So either dig and divide or else build up around them or just dig the whole clump and replant it. But uh, those hawksblood lilies are hard to come by. The ones that are sometimes sold over the Internet are a different species that do not tend to expand and do real well. They're out of Peru, and uh, I just love the Texas oxbloods like you and I both have, and uh, you just can't have too many of those things. So we've got to take good care of what we have. Well, I really enjoyed it, and I thank you for letting me know how to do that. Appreciate everything you do up in comfort. You have a wonderful Sunday, and I know we'll talk again soon. Okay, thank you, Bob. Thank you. Goodbye. All right, well, let's finish up phone calls with Scott. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Bob. Morning. Um, So about a month ago, you advised me to put some um, uh, liquid molasses on Nutsedge to try to encourage it to go away. Yes, sir. Um, I I can't tell that anything's happened. It may have, they may have eased up a little bit, but I've got like a, a quarter of an acre that's just got nuts edge everywhere. Yeah. My question for you is uh, more liquid molasses or or usually two appli- usually two applications. But you know, quarter of an acre. That's um, what what else is in there? Do you have St. Augustine? Do you have some other type of uh, turf grass? Uh, Bermuda that I keep cut pretty short. And last spring I did put. Um, uh, uh, Dadgum, um, compost. Compost. Okay. Yes, sir. And do you have a do you have a preference on the CPS version of compost or the traditional type of compost? Oh, I much prefer traditional. This it's it's actually saws rather than CPS. And uh, yeah, uh, saws. yeah, their stuff is uh, is uh, sewage sludge. And yeah. I don't object to the fact that it's human waste, but. Um, our the waste stream these days is full of pharmaceuticals it's full of hormones it's possibly full of some heavy metals all they really check for uh all the t all the uh tcq is cares about in their discharge is uh nitrates phosphates and coliform bacteria and there's just a whole lot of other things that i don't like in the uh, biosolid sludge yeah. or biosolids compost so i'm afraid i'm 100 percent on the manure compost I, I wish I'd asked you last year. <laughs> you had a smelly problem for a little while. <laughs> well, yep. back back to the nutsedge. It frequently takes more than one application. Dealing with an area that large, I don't think there's any way you can take it on all at one time. I'd be dividing it up into you know four, six, or eight sections and tackle one section at a time. The compost will help. The manure compost will help. Anything you can do to thicken that Bermuda grass up, which means uh, probably more fertilizer, more water, which is tough when it's been as dry as it has been. But uh, molasses, yeah, I would do a second application. But remember, it's a drench. It's not a foliage spray. And that's going to be a lot of work over a quarter of an acre. So let's divide it up in bite-sized pieces. 
All right, sir. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Appreciate it. And do you have a great Sunday?